And now let's start today's event. Award-winning science journalist Joe Marchant has a PhD in genetics and medical microbiology and an MSc in science communication. She has worked as an editor at New Scientist and Nature, and her articles have appeared in The Guardian, Wired, Observer, New Scientist, and Nature. Joe Marchant's previous book, Cure, made the New York Times bestseller list and was licensed to 27 countries. She is also the author of Decoding the Heavens, which was, like Cure, shortlisted for the Royal Society Prize for Science Books. She's here to talk about a, uh, her newest book with us today, The Human Cosmos. We are about to embark on a spectacular tour through humanity's relationship with the heavens, from the caves of Lascaux, France, to Einstein's study, to your own encounters in your backyards or streets for those of us city dwellers. And we will find out why stargazing can be really, really good for us. Please join me everyone today in welcoming Joe Marchant. Hi, um, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for that lovely introduction, Catherine. Um, so I'm just gonna share my screen here. Okay, hopefully you can all see that. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to be here today to talk to you about our changing relationship with the stars. And what I want to talk about is something that is so powerful that just looking at it, in fact, just looking at a photo of it uh, can make us more creative, more curious, happier, less stressed. Even weeks later, uh, it can make us um, more, more generous, feel more connected. It can make us feel as if we have more time. And this is exactly what psychologists have found for our view of the stars. Um, the starry sky is one of the most potent sources that we know of the emotion of awe. And that's the feeling that we get when we're confronted by something vast that, that dwarfs us, um, that we struggle to comprehend. Uh, when psychologists want to trigger awe in studies, often they just show people the stars. And they found that experiencing awe um, induces all those improvements in well-being that I just mentioned, but it also really changes our outlook on life. So after experiencing awe, people are, they make more ethical decisions. They're more likely to help other people. They care less about money and more about the planet. And yet, just as we're discovering um, how important this view, this connection with the bigger picture is, we're losing it uh, because of artificial light pollution. In today's cities, uh, instead of thousands of stars in the sky, we now see only a few dozen, even on a clear night. Uh, only, uh, sorry, 80% of us in Europe and in the US uh, can't see our own galaxy, the Milky Way, at all. Um, and this is really what made me want to write um, The Human Cosmos. Um, I was interested to know, well, what are we losing? How has that view of the stars been important through history? And is it still important to us, something that matters today? So in the book, I look at all the different ways in which our view of the stars has inspired and, and shaped human civilization from uh, religion to politics to arts. Uh, I'm particularly interested in how we built our scientific uh, understanding of the universe, but how at the same time um, we've also separated ourselves from the stars physically uh, and emotionally to the point where, um, you know, we may soon not be able to see the stars at all. Um, so the book's divided into 12 chapters, each one talks about a different way in which the stars um, have inspired humanity. And, and today I'm just gonna tell, sort of dip into a few stories from some of those chapters to give you a sense of the book uh, before coming back at the end uh, to this idea of awe. So let's start at the beginning. Um, let's go all the way back to the Paleolithic era and in particular to Lascaux Cave in France. And this is one of the um, the most impressive caves we know in terms of its art, its walls and ceilings are covered in um, amazing pictures of animals. So oryx bulls, horses, stags, they're around 20,000 years old. So this is a glimpse into the mind, the minds of some of our earliest ancestors. And I think one of the most uh, intriguing paintings in the cave is this one. It's an oryx bull. Uh, the largest in the cave, and it has this curious cluster of six dots just above its shoulder. Uh, and what's interesting about that is that this 
a quite characteristic pattern of dots keeps popping up um, again and again, like through history around the planet. So those are the Lascaux dots on the bottom left. Um, but that same pattern also appears in Native American art. So the other two pictures on the bottom row are examples of that. Um, in the art of shamans from Siberia, that's the middle top image. And even in the modern logo of the Japanese car maker Subaru. And all of these other four examples are representations of a star cluster, the Pleiades, which you can see on uh, the top left. Uh, and that raises the question of, well, you know, may, could the artists of Lascaux also have uh, not just been painting animals, but been painting the stars? Were they painting the Pleiades here? Um, and what makes that question even sort of more interesting, I think, is uh, where the Pleiades appear. Um, so in, in Lasco, you've got them at the shoulder of this bull, and that really mirrors the location of the Pleiades in our modern constellation Taurus. So you've got these forward pointing horns, prominent eye, that's the star Aldebaran. Uh, the cluster on the face is the star cluster, the Hyades, and then the Pleiades at uh, the shoulder. So could our- Joe, Joe, I'm so sorry to interrupt. I apologize for having to do this, but your slides are not changing for us. Oh, okay. They're changing for me, sorry about that. Um, that's really weird. Um, I'm going back now then to the first one. Um, so what do, you, what do you see, the title slide? Correct, I just see, see the title slide right now. Oh, um, okay. Uh, I'm gonna stop share and then start the share again to see if that helps. Sounds great. Thank you for your patience, everyone. Um, did that change? Yes. Perfect. Oh, Thank you. Okay. Oh, I'm so sorry about that. Um, well, I'll take you through the slides you missed ever so quick then. So th this was my example of the starry sky when I was talking about the emotion of awe um, and how that, that experience of awe when we're looking at the stars um, can trigger all of these changes in, in people's well-being and their outlook on life. Um, light pollution, today's cities, it's all gone. Um, this was the book <laughs> uh, that I was talking about. Um, um, so I'm looking at how the, uh, the stars have, have shaped different aspects of civilization. Um, so there's 12 chapters in the book looking at different ways in which the stars have inspired us. And so I'm just going to focus in on a few of those stories. Um, Lascaux Cave. So this is the, the, the Oryx bull that I was talking about with the six dots. So can you see that? Are we in, all in the same? Everything's great. Keep going. Okay. Just checking. So this is the, the bull with the pattern of the six dots above the shoulder. Um, and so that's the, the Lascaux dots on the bottom left. And then you can see these other examples of similar patterns um, in different types of art in the Subaru logo. That's the actual stars on the top left. Uh, I think we just about got to here where I was saying that What's also interesting about this is where those stars are located just above the shoulder of the Oryx bull. Um, and that looks very similar to our modern constellation Taurus with the horns, the eye, the speckles of the Hyades on the face. So that raises this question of, well, could these artists have been painting a star map when they painted this bull? And if so, why would they have wanted to link the Pleiades stars with a bull? Um, and of course, it's very hard to say anything for sure about what the artists at Lascaux were thinking. They didn't write any of this down, unfortunately. But there are different approaches to trying to understand what these pictures might have been about. And I'm just going to go through one of those lines of evidence um, quickly today, which is that anthropologists can look at um, more recent traditional societies, hunter-gatherer societies, um, that live lives of what may be similar complexity to the way in which the Lascaux artists lived. Uh, for example, the Chumash people um, who lived until recently in California. This is some of their cave arts showing astronomical symbols. And in these kinds of societies all around the planet, um, almost invariably, the, the, what's happening in the sky, the cosmos, plays a really central role in their lives. It's important for how they live, their art, their beliefs, often their houses are based on models of the, the cosmos. And that's because what's happening in the sky was crucial for their lives on Earth. It, was, it shaped their environment on Earth and therefore was really important um, for, for survival 
really. Um, and and uh, an obvious example is what the sun's doing, that's de de determining whether it's light or dark, hot or cold, whether life on earth is thriving or lying dormant. You've got the moon is determining um, light levels at night, which is important for activities like hunting, but also regulates fertility and reproduction in a lot of uh, species, possibly even humans. Um, but perhaps less obvious is what's happening with the stars. Um, so the stars each night, because of the way that the earth is turning, they appear to circle in the sky around the celestial poles in the north and south. So the movement of the stars through the night is giving you a sense of orientation. It's telling you your direction um, relative to north and south. It's giving a sense of time passing through the night. But the stars also change throughout the year with the seasons. So as the sun, as the earth moves around the sun, um, different star constellations become visible in the sky. And so for these societies, um, different natural seasonal changes that are happening on Earth are mirrored by changes in the stars that are visible in the sky. So a lot of these hunter-gatherer societies have calendars that are based on the risings and settings of different stars. Often they relate different stars to animals um, and tell stories about animals in the sky. And just to give one example um, that's relevant for the Lascaux bull, the um, Native American Blackfoot people traditionally linked the visibility of the Pleiades stars to the life cycle of the bison, which they hunted. So when the Pleiades set, for example, it was time to hunt. So one idea is that the artists of Lascaux might have done a similar thing with the oryx, which they hunted. Uh, one astronomer has calculated that um, at the time this bull was painted, the, the visibility of the Pleiades stars would have defined quite nicely the mating season of the oryx bull. So perhaps they had a similar calendar linking the movements of the Pleiades with the life cycle of the oryx, which was very important to them, and perhaps then went one step further to sort of imagining this, the Pleiades associated with this bull in the sky. And it's, you know, we can't know for sure if that's what's happened, but from all the different lines of evidence, it does seem most likely that the people of this time would have had a very holistic view of the cosmos based on their personal experience of seeing um, events change on earth and in the sky as one interconnected system so they didn't really distinguish between humans and nature between earth and sky it was just all one one cosmos based on their experience of it and the story since then has really been about how we've um, separated ourselves out from that cosmos and built the objective understanding of science um, so when did that first split away from nature come. Um, and to look at that, we'll stop briefly in Turkey in the 10th millennium BC. And this is a site called Gobekli Tepe, these um, stone circular enclosures. Um, and this site, it's sort of located in time, just at the transition between the Paleolithic and the Neolithic. So this is after Lascaux, um, but still about 6,000 years earlier than Stonehenge. So this is the earliest site with the monuments made out of giant stone um, that we know about. And it's interesting because it occurs just before a really crucial invention in human history, which was the birth of farming, when people first started to control and, and exploit the species around them. And it's also located exactly at the place where farming was about to occur. Um, so Looking a bit more closely um, at these stone circles, you can see that there are these T-shaped pillars around the edge with two more bigger pillars in the center. They're up to five and a half meters high. Um, and the carvings on them, they've got um, belts, arms, necklaces, loincloths. So it seems that despite their shape, these pillars were intended as some kind of human-like figures. Um, they've got different symbols on them. One you can see on the right here, there's a disc and crescent that's been suggested to represent the moon. Um, and one theory about this site is that it was meant as an observatory for sighting stars in the sky. Um, that's unlikely. Uh, the archaeologists who've been working at this site say that the circles were kind of dug down uh, into the ground and probably actually had roofs over. So you wouldn't have been able to see the sky. But they think that these spaces were nonetheless uh, absolutely about how people saw their cosmos. Um, for one thing, there's a real obsession with death here. Lots of skulls have been found that seem to have been hung up for display. And you couldn't just 
uh, walk into these spaces. They didn't have doors. You had to crawl through a little porthole that was um, surrounded by scary carvings, things like animals lying dead on their backs. So the archaeologists think that these spaces actually represented uh, portals to the underworld, um, the cosmic realm of the dead, and that these T-shaped pillars um, represented some kind of transcendent beings, um, maybe sort of human spirits or ancestors in the underworld. So this site overall, it represents a really interesting and important change in how people were relating to their environment, their, their cosmos. So first of all, um, it's the, the human figures that, that dominate. So at Lascaux, it's, it's all animals. There are very few figures of humans, um, but here it's really, um, yeah, the humans that are dominating, you've still got the sort of animal carvings, but they're sort of subordinate to these, these pillars. Um, and so there's a sort of sense that humans are somehow being separated from, raised above the rest of nature here. Um, then you've got the focus on the dead. So there's this move from seeing animals in the sky towards spirit worlds filled with human ancestors. And then people are starting to control and manipulate their environment. They're building their own portals to other cosmic realms. Um, and People talk about sort of what was it that led to that invention of farming. There's mention of factors like maybe climate change um, led to increased pressure for food. Um, but there's also a growing um, idea that actually there also needed to be a shift in mindset in, in cosmology. And that might maybe what we're seeing here at the Bekri Tepe was this change in cosmology, this split away from, from nature where people are sort of starting to control their environment. And that was really what made farming possible, um, made it conceivable, if you like, and that then led to all of the, the technological progress that was to follow that has so defined our species. Oh. Um, so let's jump ahead now to um, the first written records uh, of beliefs about the sky, um, and in particular to the birth of an idea that's been really influential in human history, um, that our fate lies in the stars. Um, and the this is a story about how people's desire to read their future in the stars, the very magical thinking, actually um, helped to lead to a scientific approach to understanding the universe. Um, and the evidence for this um, is held in an ancient library, um, the, the library of, the, of an Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal. Uh, his palace was discovered in uh, Iraq in the 19th century, so thousands of clay tablets dug up from his palace. Um, and he, he ruled in the 7th century BC, um, but he collected texts from all over his empire, which included Babylon. Um, and also many of these texts, these tablets were already centuries old when he collected them. So overall, this library gives us a fascinating insight into beliefs um, in, in this part of the world over centuries. And, and what the tablets show above anything is an absolute obsession with what was going on in the sky. So they still had this holistic view of the cosmos. They saw events happening on Earth and in the sky as being connected, but um, they really took it to extremes. So they saw anything that happened in the sky, a, a planet changing direction, for example, as celestial warnings from, from the gods about uh, terrible things that were about to happen on Earth. Um, so these omens about uh, famine or attack, for example, um, one type of celestial event that was seen as really important was um, a lunar eclipse um, that was seen as often foretelling the death of the king. And if you knew about these omens, you could conduct rituals that would then dispel the evil and stop the bad thing from happening. So King Ashurbanipal, um, he collected all of these texts so that he could stay ahead of these omens, stay alive and, and in power. And he had teams of astronomers who watched the sky every night to sort of look out for celestial events and, and warn the king about these omens. Um, and the, the best at doing this were the priests of Babylon, the Babylonians. And they really drove these beliefs. They'd been watching the sky for centuries before Ashurbanipal's reign and carried on doing so for centuries after. Um, and this is a picture of what Babylon might have looked like around the sixth century BC. Um, and you can see that tower in the distance. Uh, that was where the priests climbed to make their observations. Um, it's immortalized in the Bible as the Tower of Babel, um, but the priests saw it as the gateway between heaven and earth. So they, they climbed there, noted down what was happening in the sky every night in astronomical diaries. And because they did this literally for centuries, 
over time they were able to spot patterns in what was happening in the sky. Um, so periods of time after which certain types of events would repeat, even things that at first had seemed quite erratic, so the wandering motions of the planets or the changing speed in the sun or the moon. Um, and so they called these great cycles, periods of time after which these events would repeat. Um, the wandering path of the planet Venus, for example, repeats uh, roughly every eight years. Patterns of eclipses repeat every 18 years. Um, so they were starting to use maths to make sense of what was happening in the sky. And then around 400 BC, they came up with an invention that made them even more powerful. Um, and that was the zodiac. So that the path that the, the sun takes uh, in the sky, as we're looking at it against the background stars or through the year, uh, that's called the ecliptic. And the Babylonian priests divided that 360 degree circle into 12 30 degree segments, named each one after a nearby constellation. And that's the origins of the 12 sign zodiac that we still have today. Uh, we don't have all of the same 12 signs that the Babylonians used, but several of them were taken on by the Greeks and we've inherited them, um, including uh, Taurus, the, the Babylonians' great bull of heaven. But the reason the priests did this is interesting. They did it because they wanted to have an accurate um, coordinate system or a, a scale, if you like, in the sky, so that when they looked at different events, like a lunar eclipse, they could note down sort of to the degree very precisely where in the sky it had happened. And that made their, their observations uh, a lot more accurate. And shortly after that, they were able to come up with quite complex mathematical rules to compute the, the motion of different celestial bodies in the sky. So they, they know longer needed to really watch the sky at all. They could predict in advance where any object was going to be at any particular time. And that was a really kind of crucial shift in, in history. So the, the priests were driven by this desire to, to track these omens, but that led them to become the first people to, to use mathematics to make sense of the sky, to move from an analog cosmos to a digital one, if you like. And that has been really crucial in allowing the development of a scientific approach to, to measuring and understanding the universe that's been so important ever since. So, so we started with this holistic cosmos, um, no distinction really between humans and nature, earth and sky, uh, then we had the first split away from nature and the first people to use numbers to make sense of the sky. Um, so I want to talk now about how we invented our modern sense of time. Um, this is Richard of Wallingford. He was the abbot of St Albans Monastery in England in the 14th century AD. Um, he's had leprosy, in case you're wondering what's going on with his face. Um, and he also created a, a spectacular invention, um, which he's pointing to here, high on the wall of the Abbey's church. And it was an impressive celestial clock, a self-moving model of the cosmos. And it was really ahead of its time. So impressive that somebody who saw it two centuries later said that it was a marvel still without equal in all of Europe. And unfortunately, uh, this clock doesn't survive, but we do have Richard's instructions for building it, which he wrote in the 14th century. Um, and this is actually the, the oldest or earliest description that we have of any mechanical clock. So I, I wanted to say a little bit about it just because it was a really impressive object in itself, but also because it uh, symbolizes a kind of another key transformation in our history, which was the moment when we took time out of the cosmos. Uh, and so what do I mean by took time out of the cosmos? Well, today we sort of think of time as this sort of separate abstract thing that passes, seconds ticking by that you can count. Um, but that's not um, inevitable way of looking at time. Um, for most of human history, it was absolutely bound up in the, the movements in the sky, the, the sort of cycles of the sun, the moon, the stars, the passing days, seasons and years. And there are still people living today in the Amazon, for example, who have that view of time. You have no word for time in itself, even any concept of abstract time. Um, and it was really the the monks of medieval Europe who changed our view of time because they became really obsessed with counting time because they wanted to time their prayers more accurately. Um, so they were moving away from natural cues like sunrise and sunset and counting the hours. 
Um, already by the 11th century, they were using water clocks that rang bells to tell them when to pray. And then um, right at the end of the 13th century, the very first mechanical clocks appeared in English churches. Um, and then, as I said, Richard's description is the earliest actual, the earliest actual description that we have. And this is the key bit of the mechanism that made it possible, um, even though it doesn't look like much. So um, this is the escapement. So all efforts to make clocks before this had, whether they were um, flowing water or burning candles, falling sand, these are all different types of continuous flow, which kind of makes sense. You know, time seems like something that passes, flows continuously. But uh, the problem with these kinds of processes is that it's really hard to get them to uh, flow at a constant rate. Um, the, the monks um, at this time were having the same problem. They were experimenting with trains of mechanical gear wheels that were um, driven by falling weights attached to a rope or a chain. Um, and that they had the same problem that the, the weights fell too fast and they sped up as they fell to the ground. And so this escapement is the little semicircular bit near the top is a kind of rocks back and forth and it alternately blocks and releases the movement of that gear wheel. So it's turning a, that sort of continuous flow into a series of regular discrete chunks. And so that allows the mechanism to run at an even rate. Um, but it also kind of changes time in a way. It, it slices up time. It's no longer a continuous flow. And now you have the sort of separate beats or ticks of the clock. And what Richard did with this um, clockwork um, is really interesting too, because he didn't just build a simple timepiece or an alarm. He built a model of the universe. Um, these are a couple of reconstructions of what it might have looked like. We know it had a big iron sort of display dial that turned in time with the stars. A bell, a bell rang every hour. There was a pointer that moved with the varying speed of the sun, a second pointer for the moon that had a little ball on it painted black and white um, that showed the phase of the moon. Um, it calculated lunar eclipses, showed the movements of the planets, even the rise and fall of the tide at the port of, of London Bridge. Um, so you can see that for, for Richard still, the concept of time was still absolutely bound up, like inseparable from movements and events on Earth and in the sky. Um, and Richard, he devoted his life to building this thing. He spent pretty much all of the Abbey's funds on it. But he was right about the importance of the technology, because after his death, these astronomical clocks with their sophisticated celestial displays um, swept through Europe. Um, not just in monasteries, but also in, in towns and public squares. And they increasingly came to rule people's lives, daily life, um, instead of being controlled by the bells ringing from the churches, were now being controlled by these astronomical clocks. They, everybody had to count time. They told people when to, uh, when their work shifts started and ended, uh, market trading hours, meeting times, drinking times in the pub. So historians now see mechanical clocks as a crucial invention that really helped to create our modern way of life that um, enabled um, economic development, secularization, capitalism, um, industrial revolution. Um, but as well as changing how we lived, mechanical clocks ultimately also changed our sense of time because in, initially they had these astronomical displays, but as clocks became more accurate, they became seen as being actually more accurate than the sun and they, they dropped those displays. The, the clocks were no longer sort of modeling or copying the moon and the sun, they've transcended them, they're telling time in their own right. And we now think of time as, as something um, not to do with the sky, but as this separate abstract quantity, more like money, really, that we can count, buy, waste, spend, save. So I'm just going to talk briefly now about uh, power and how our beliefs about how the cosmos works have always uh, shaped how we live on Earth um, in terms of our political structures and, and particularly who gets to be in charge and why. Um, and this is something that is just as true today as it ever was. So if you look at ancient civilizations, uh, rulers almost invariably um, took their power from the heavens. Um, we've got um, the Roman Emperor Claudius here shown as the planet Jupiter. Um, the Chinese Emperor Wu, who was known as the Son of Heaven, uh, the Egyptian Pharaoh Akhenaten, who called himself the Son of the Sun. Um, more recently, there's the 
the French King Louis XIV um, shown here also as the sun. Um, so they're all sort of modeling themselves on divine celestial bodies, taking their authority from the heavens. And that's really effective because it's very hard to question someone's authority if it is literally coming from how the universe works. But as we've built a more scientific understanding of how the universe works, that has fed through into our political structures. And one of the key people responsible for this change is the physicist Isaac Newton. So he revolutionized physics with his ideas of well, his universal laws of motion and gravitation. And so the idea that um, everything in the universe from particles to planets obeys the same physical laws of motion. And that means that celestial bodies were no longer you know, divine beings that could move however they wanted to. They had to obey the same physical laws as everything else. And so that meant that people started asking, well, if that's true for the universe, shouldn't that be true for people as well? Like, shouldn't everybody from commoners to kings have to obey the same laws? Um, and these ideas became really influential after Newton's death through the 18th century during the Enlightenment in discussions about democracy and, and human rights. Um, you can see that in uh, the kind of images and language that people were using. So when people like Lord Bolingbroke and Montesquieu were talking about, for example, the role of the English government as a check on the power of the king, they're talking about orbits and gravitation. Um, people were particularly interested in the balance of forces that Newton talked about. So the balance between centrifugal and centripetal force that kept planets stable in their orbits and they wanted to know if you could replicate that in a human society. Um, these kinds of ideas were also influential um, in talk of revolution uh, in America and France. Um, so uh, one of the most influential people calling for independence in America was Thomas Paine, who famously wrote the pamphlet Common Sense, which really tipped the balance of popular opinion in favor of independence in America. Um, and he said in no Actually, I can't see the I can't see the quote the quote because all the buttons are in the way. Um, but he's basically talking about he's using a an argument from Newtonian physics, um, saying arguing that in nature the satellite is always smaller than the, the primary planet or sun that it's orbiting, and because England and America reverse that, America's bigger than England. Therefore, America they belong to different systems. America should be independent. And then after the revolution as well, when the sort of founders of the new United States were discussing how to set up their new democratic government, they, they argued about how tightly controlled the states should be by federal government, whether they should be left to move freely in their orbits or whether their attractions and repulsions should be controlled. But everyone was now working in this new Newtonian framework. Um, this was no longer about the divine right to rule, but about um, societies and governments having to follow logical, physical laws, um, just as with the universe. And there's one more detail about this that I love, which is that before the revolution, America was seen as a, um, a colony or a planet orbiting the central sun of England, um, which meant that after independence, the, the colonists had to come up with a new uh, image and um, there couldn't be a planet sort of drifting on its own without a sun so they came up with the idea of a constellation of stars one newspaper at the time talked about a constellation founded upon principles of perfect equity um, a, a republic amidst stars which i think is a lovely image and of course it meant that when they were coming up with a, a flag for the new united states there was only one way that they could represent the states which was as a constellation of stars in the sky. So I want to tell um, one more story which is about light uh, because light is our main source of information about the wider cosmos. Um, for most of human history it's been our only pretty much source of information about the cosmos. So this is a story about how we've changed what we do with that light. So our characters here are William and Mary Huggins. They were husband and wife astronomers working in the 19th century. Um, and before he met Mary, William was a, a keen uh, amateur astronomer and he built an entire observatory in his back garden um, of his house in Tulse Hill in London. It's just around the corner from where I am now. Uh, and he had a big telescope that he used to observe the stars, to sketch the planets, until in 1862 he went to a lecture which 
changed his life. Um, this lecture was about research being carried out at the time in Germany by the chemist Robert Bunsen, who's famous for having invented the Bunsen burner, and the physicist Gustav Kirchhoff. Now Bunsen and Kirchhoff were interested in this phenomenon that you might be familiar with, where if you burn different elements in a flame, they'll burn with different colours. Um, and Bunsen and Kirchhoff wanted to know why that was. But instead of just looking at the colours by eye, saying, well, that one's blue, that one's greenish blue, um, they came up with this piece of kit called a spectroscope to try and analyse it more quantitatively. So you can see the famous Bunsen burner on the right there, labelled D, there's a little sample burning in the flame. The light goes through the telescope B, and then there's a prism which splits the light into a spectrum. So it's separating out all the different frequencies or colours of light into bands. And then that light goes through the other telescope C, where they could analyse it and look for the presence and absence of different frequencies of light. And that enabled Bunsen and Kirchhoff to show that every element burns with its very distinctive pattern of light, like a fingerprint that you can use to identify that element. And most of the lecture that Hubbins went to was about how you could use this in the lab to analyse chemical samples. But it also mentioned how they had used their spectroscope to analyse sunlight, to look for elements in the sun. And they had shown that some of the same elements that we have on Earth are also present in the sun. And that might sound pretty obvious, but at the time this was revolutionary because the chemical composition of celestial bodies was something that was seen at the time as something that it was just impossible to know. Uh, people thought that uh, scientists could describe the motion of uh, celestial bodies or their appearance, but the idea of actually analysing their chemical composition, that was just seen as impossible to do scientifically. They're just too distant. You can never get hold of a sample. But now, here was a way to do it with the light. And Huggins was captivated by this. He wrote later that he felt as if a key, he'd been given a key that would unlock a door that had been regarded as forever closed to man. So he set about opening that door. He um, kitted out his observatory like a chemistry lab with batteries and um, chemicals, vacuum tubes, Bunsen burner. Um, and so he fitted a prism to the end of his telescope which then separated the weak starlight into a spectrum and then compared the lines in those spectra with the lines from elements that he burned in his lab. Um, and he showed that the same chemical elements are also present in the stars. So this chemistry that we know on Earth um, extends not just across the solar system, but across the universe. So then he met Mary and she was an expert in a brand new technique of photography. So after that, they worked together photographing um, star spectra. They photographed hundreds of spectra of, of stars and planets, nebulae. Um, and in 1899, they published a grand atlas of star spectra, which is really a, just a wonderful book. Um, and by comparing the differences between different stars, they, they discussed in this book the idea that stars are not eternal, unchanging points of light, that stars actually evolve as they burn fuel through their lives. And they even talked about the idea of um, new generations of stars emerging out of the exploded remains of the old. So this was a very, um, it was a dynamic picture of an evolving universe, something very different to what had been seen before. And this was um, the origins really of the field of astrophysics. And now we have mind-bogglingly powerful telescopes that analyze spectra, not just of visible light, but every part of the electromagnetic spectrum. Um, and this field of study that the Hugginses helped to start has really shaken human culture. So we, you know, we used to have myths about what the celestial bodies are, where the universe comes from, and now all of that has been replaced by uh, scientific evidence-based explanations. Um, uh, spectroscopy has shown that we all come from stars, almost every atom in our bodies was once part of a star. Um, scientists have used spectroscopy to pin down the life cycles of stars and that has led in turn to the discovery of completely new kinds of celestial objects, things like black holes, supernovae, neutron stars. Um, physicists looking at the Doppler shift of, of spectra, that was what first told them that um, galaxies are flying away from us in all directions, that the universe is expanding. And that led in turn to the theory of how the universe began in a big bang. So now we have the scientific creation story for the universe. So 
we have this you know a much greater understanding now than ever before of what the universe is um, and how it works but there is also an irony there because um, spectroscopy also in a different way has contributed to our physical separation from the universe from the stars because no one actually looks through these telescopes um, the photons of light are received by electronic detectors and analyzed by computer so again there's this move away from personal experience to measurement and calculation our main source of knowledge and understanding about the universe um, now it doesn't come from our eyes and our personal experience but from our increasingly accurate instruments um, and that's true from a practical point of view in our everyday lives as well. So technology has pretty much replaced any personal direct connection with the stars. Um, we have artificial lights and central heating that mean we can kind of live how we want. We don't need to pay attention to daily cycles or the seasons. Um, we have clocks and GPS to tell us when and where we are. Um, most of our entertainment is also coming from screens and so we've got this unprecedented freedom and convenience from that technology but scientists are also starting to realize that cutting ourselves off from this from our environment from our the wider cosmos in that way losing that personal connection does also have some downsides so just to give three like super swift examples um, neuroscientists have found that when we use sat nav gps systems to navigate for example that changes our brains in a way that erodes our awareness of the real world around us um, and, and also sort of diminishes our ability to navigate for ourselves. Um, I talked about clocks, so as we count um, minutes and seconds ever more accurately, um, we race from one deadline to the next, that's contributing to a phenomenon that psychologists call time famine, where we all feel constantly rushed and stressed. Um, also, uh, lights and heating, that's enabling us to sort of live in a way that's separated from the the daily cycles of the sun and the moon. Um, but again, that's disrupting our biological clocks and in turn having, you know, causing problems for sleep and, and mental and physical health. So um, looking back at this sort of long history, you know, we've built this wonderful scientific understanding of the universe and, and uh, reality out there. But what really jumps out at me is, as, is that as we focused on these objective measurements and, and calculations, We've also perhaps forgotten the importance of our own personal experience of the stars. Um, and so I just want to finish by coming back to one more example of where that personal connection is important. Um, and that's with this idea of awe. So the, the Canadian astronaut, uh, Chris Hadfield, he talks about on his first um, spacewalk, he stepped out of the space station, ready for his mission, technically prepared. And then he saw the earth um, and he said, I was attacked by raw beauty. Uh, it was stupefying. It stops your thought. Um, he talked about the uh, velvet bucket of stars stretching on forever in one direction. And in the other direction, there was the earth, this amazing kaleidoscope of color pouring by. Um, and he said that the experience taught him the power of the presence of the world as told to me by my ability to see it. And I think that's really beautiful about the importance of it being not just machines up there, but, um, but him actually able to see the world. Um, and other astronauts have had similar experiences. It's known as the overview effect, where they come back from space, talking about the importance of protecting the planet, uh, of treating each other better. Their perspective is really changed by this experience. And we can have similar experiences on Earth as well, looking up at the stars if we get the opportunity to see them. Uh, a truly dark sky is something that I've only seen once or twice in my life. And it, when you do, it's really just mind blowing. You feel lifted up uh, and that has a name as well. Celestial vaulting, this feeling you get when you feel um, lifted up into the stars at one with the cosmos. And this is the kind of experience that psychologists are interested in when they study awe. And as I said at the beginning, that makes people more creative, more curious, happier, but also makes them more, more generous, more likely to help other people. They care more about the planet. Um, and interestingly, or also seems to shrink our sense of self. So after experiencing awe, people uh, assign their names smaller, they estimate their own physical size as smaller, brain activity associated with our sense of self is also reduced. So it seems that this 
sort of connection with a bigger picture is actually shifting our focus away from ourselves, our sort of own selfish daily concerns that seemed so important before. And we see ourselves more in relation to a bigger picture. Um, and that, that changes us, it changes how we live and the decisions that we make. Um, all researchers have warned about um, what they call uh, awe deprivation. So this idea that in modern society, we're all focused on small screens, we're, we're not getting, you know, we're not being confronted by these vast horizons of nature, we're not getting that connection to a bigger picture and that that lack of awe is making us more selfish and narcissistic. Um, you know, we're confronted with so many global challenges at the moment from the climate crisis to the pandemic. Um, and, you know, we obviously we need a, a scientific, rational approach to understand the problems that we're facing and to come up with solutions. But when it comes to, you know, making the choices and decisions that we need to make to live sustainably and, and peacefully on this planet, I think the science is also showing us that we are also going to need some awe. So just to conclude, over the centuries, we've uh, built on what the Babylonians started. We've created this wonderful uh, scientific, uh, mathematical understanding of the universe. And I think that what we need now is perhaps to rescue our personal experience of the stars. Um, we talk about the importance of connecting with nature. And I think we should include the sky and the stars um, in that. And we should fight to keep our view of them. Um, and that's because the stars are important for our cultural heritage. Um, I've tried to explain how um, our view of the stars is something that connects us to people all through history and around the planet. It's really shaped who we are, um, but also because that view, that experience of the stars, I think is vitally important for how we still live today. Um, so that's the end of my talk. I'm gonna stop screen sharing now and I'd like to invite Victoria back for um, some questions, hopefully. Hi, thank you so much, Joe. I never knew, um, and I'm so glad you put a, uh, a phrase to it, because I myself have only seen a truly dark sky once, and now I know what that experience was called, celestial bolting. <laughs> yeah, it's a great term. <laughs> All right, we've got some really great questions today. Um, the first one is, are there any studies of the impact on ways of telling time on human happiness? Are the hunter-gatherers hunter who measure by the phases of the moon happier than those of us who measure by the hour? I don't know if that's been done directly, but there are definitely studies looking. Um, so first of all, just looking at the effects of, of time famine. So the more accurately we measure time, um, it, it makes people um, feel stressed, rushed, as if they don't have enough time. And the problem, well, that's a problem in itself, but it also leads people to, to um, miss out on things that are really important. So there are studies showing that people won't visit the doctor if they need to, if they're feeling like rushed, they don't have enough time, they don't help other people as much, they don't engage in le leisure activities, they don't eat healthily. So that it's kind of knock-on effects from feeling rushed that then impact the rest of life. And there are also studies showing actually that the emotion of awe makes people feel as if they have more time. Um, and there's also some studies showing that cultures that have a kind of circular view of time, who kind of um, are aware of the sort of cycles of the cosmos, they experience time famine less than cultures that have a linear view of time, that see sort of time as passing in a line. So um, those, those are the studies that I'm aware of. Hopefully that answers the question a little bit. So interesting. Uh, next question. Well, first is a comment. Uh, thank you. The book is wonderful. Highly recommended. Um, did you change as a result of this project? Yeah, I did actually. Um, I, was, I was already interested in um, the history of astronomy in the heavens from the first book that I, I wrote, Decoding the Heavens. Um, and I was interested in the link between mind and body from my book Cure, which is about the importance of the mind and physical health. So that kind of led me to this subject. But I think what I wasn't expecting was that it actually really changed my view of, of reality, of what reality actually is. So I've grown up with a sort of scientific view, I guess, that there's a sort of physical reality out there, an objective reality. Um, and then we sort of experience that reality. Um, so we're kind of observers of, of what's going on. Um, and this really made me question that partly 
realizing that it's not inevitable. You look at the long history and you realize how recent and, and actually quite bizarre that view is that for most of human history, it's been all about our experience. You know, reality is what we experience. And then also I look a bit at the end of the book at um, developments in, in quantum physics, for example, which is really calling into question this idea that there's this solid, objective, measurable reality out there at all. Um, and also developments in, in philosophy, looking at panpsychism, for example, the idea that uh, all of, you know, that consciousness, rather than being something that kind of arose accidentally during evolution, just in our brains, is a fundamental part of what the universe is and, and for me personally what it all added up to was that I now see reality much more as a a combination between the objective and the subjective like I think there is objective reality out there but I think that reality is our experience of that objective reality um, I think that's absolutely bound up in it and it's made me see kind of every moment of my life differently actually like I'm no longer an observer moving through space but I'm actually creating all of those moments that I experience. And that's actually really helped me through through lockdown, through being stuck in the house and every day seeming, seeming the same, that having this sort of more kind of active, creative um, view of what my life is, um, for me has been really um, heartening. <laughs> Absolutely. We knew nothing about exoplanets uh, until about 25 years ago. Now using a variety of techniques, example, the Nobel uh, Prize, scientists have seen more than 4,000 in a few decades. Our understanding of what solar systems can look like, can look like has radically changed. How might this exoplanet research rekindle a sense of awe and connection to the wider universe? Ooh, nice question. Um, so I have a whole chapter in the book on um, aliens, actually. So looking at how our attitudes to extraterrestrial life has changed and the sort of eternal fascination of, is there life out there? You know, and, and either way, it's kind of mind blowing. Either we are the only sort of living things, the, the, the only example of life awareness in this entire universe, or we're sort of part of this much bigger sort of cosmic web of life. So either way, and, and yeah, it's really weird to think that until the 1990s, we had never seen evidence of another planet outside our solar system. So people had speculated about it, but that was the first time that one was actually seen. And yeah, now we've seen thousands. And actually, every way in which people are sort of approaching this question of are there other worlds, other Earths, is there other life? So whether they're looking for planets in other solar systems, whether they're looking at the sort of conditions for life or on Mars, um, whether they're looking at what kind of niches can life exist on here on Earth, or can, you know, what kind of organisms can uh, survive on sort of rocks in space, however people are looking at it, um, everything we're looking at, the, the, the universe is seeming to be more and more habitable, more opportunities for life. And life is actually seeming more and more kind of tenacious and, and flexible in where it can exist. I think we used to have a very anthropocentric view of the kinds of conditions you needed for life. And now, you know, on earth, we see it pretty much everywhere. If you have liquid water, it doesn't matter, you will have life. So I, I think overall, it's, for me at least, you know, that um, ideas about whether there are aliens or not have kind of, um, there's been a sort of pendulum swing through history as to how seriously that's been taken. But I think at the moment, you know, we still haven't found def definitive proof, but from the science, it just is seeming more and more likely that we are going to find life absolutely throughout the universe. And, and yeah, I absolutely think that that's awe inspiring. For those of us who are city dwellers, are there websites you would recommend we visit to stay in touch with the changing sky through the year? Oh, I don't know if I know any specific URLs. There are lots actually. So you can um, Google and find it. And I think that that's a, it's a really nice idea. Like I've realized, I used to think that being in London, there wasn't much point in trying to look at the sky. Like we really can't see much in the way of, of, of stars. Um, Sirius, I, we get a nice view of sometimes and the pole star. But actually, as I've started looking more, I've realized that there are all sorts of things that you can um, connect with. So the movements of the planets, for example. And for me, particularly the moon, like you can always see the, the you know, the phase of, of the moon. Um, so that kind of just 
that sense of time passing with the changing phase of, of the moon or quite often, you know, when I'd be walking home from the kids and uh, with the kids from school in the dark, you know, often we'd see maybe Venus or maybe Sirius and we'd imagine that it was guiding us home. So I love knowing all of these stories from different cultures about the different celestial bodies and then when you start to see them in the sky it kind of gives you a connection it kind of expands your neighborhood if you like and gives you that 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 connection and that familiarity that sort of gives your environment more meaning which i think we can do with every aspect of our environment but we can also do it with this with the sky so i'm um, uh, yeah i can't don't have any specific um urls that i'd recommend in in particular but yeah there are definitely um lots of good ones out there and, and and some of them you can sort of put in time and date and it will show you um, i've actually got an app on my phone let me see what it's called i think it's just called virtual universe um i'm not gonna be able to find it now with everybody watching um, <laughs> oh yeah oh P pocket universe sorry <laughs> uh, so i have pocket universe on my phone i'm terrible with names but um that's a really nice one because you, you can hold your phone up in any direction towards the sky and it will show you on the screen exactly kind of what you're looking at so it'll give names to everything and and you know even if it's cloudy it'll show you what would have been there so i use that quite a lot with kids to kind of identify different stars and things that we're seeing so we'll probably end on this question it's it's a good one here. Are you aware of the scientific study of the cosmos that is very much linked to our current understanding of life on Earth? In particular, uh, science are focusing on energy fluxes or storms, uh, its flares, um, solar wind, iodized radiation, the northern lights, and the interplanetary importance of gravitational pull of the alignment of large planets such as Jupiter and Saturn upon events and long-term trends that have changed Earth's orbit and accounted for a rhythm, rhythm of terrestrial ice ages. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, um, so there are, um, yeah, there are studies looking really long term at the history of life on Earth and the patterns of mass extinctions, for example. Um, so there were some looking at, so I need to get, <laughs> I need to get this right now. So our solar system, as it's kind of um, moved in within the Milky Way, I think. So it's more or less protected from sort of cosmic radiation. I think I've got that right. I'm not sure. Um, but basically differing levels of cosmic radiation on the Earth due to sort of our um, the position of our solar system that's been uh, sort of matched to patterns of, of mass extinctions and so has sort of could have really directly kind of you know affected the progression the evolution of life on earth um, and there are some studies sort of on a more um, short-term basis as well looking at, at, at solar wind and that's something that's hasn't been taken massively seriously in Western science, actually, but in other countries such as Russia, there's been a lot of interest in um, the influence on, on biology and perhaps that's something that Western science will, will catch up with. Um, but also I, I have a chapter in the book looking at biology and how our biology has shaped, been shaped by the cosmos um, and how in tune we are with those different patterns of, of, of motion. So, you know, we know that our biology is regulated by sunlight, patterns of sunlight, for example. There's some really interesting work showing that patterns of moonlight are also really important and may actually be encoded in our DNA the same way as solar clocks are. Um, uh, and also um, um, our response, responsivity to magnetic fields as well. And again, this is quite early days, but scientists are realizing how a lot of species, you know, from butterflies to turtles to um, birds, are can, can are sensitive to changing magnetic fields, um, and it seems increasingly likely that humans, in some sense, are as well. And uh, what I didn't realize until I looked into all this is that the movements of the sun and the moon actually create a ripple in the Earth's magnetic field, sort of a sort of daily ripple. Um, and there's some really interesting evidence that that's actually feeding in, maybe acting as an extra time cue for our biological clocks and there's some work looking at um, bipolar disorder where people their mood swings are affected by changes in sleep um, and when they track the timing of that over many years they show that actually that was um, being caused by um, cycles in the moon and not phases of the moon the moon
moon like but actual tidal cycles which are involved which are sort of more gravitational effects which in turn could be caused by changes in the earth's magnetic field so um that it's just a really interesting time in terms of um the biology of, of how we're connected to cosmic events i think that we're much more sort of deeply plugged into that than, than we'd ever realized.